You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 1st of February 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show... I am seriously considering running for president as a centrist independent. And I wanted to clarify the word independent, which I view uh, merely as a designation on the ballot. Don't help elect Trump, you egotistical billionaire... An equivocal response to Howard Schultz's plans to run for president. My guests Ben Ryland, Georgina Godwin and Chiara Ramella will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Zimbabwe's depressing failure to improve a year and more after the removal of Robert Mugabe, the unlikely winner of Australia's richest literary prize and an arguably even less likely media startup. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocle 24's Georgina Godwin, Chiara Ramella and Ben Ryland. Welcome all. And we will start tonight in the United States and this week's suggestion by former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz that he might have a crack at the presidency, presumably on the assumption that runs for the job by billionaire businessmen with no experience of elected office have always worked out so well before. Mr Schultz also appears set on running as an independent candidate, doubtless with a view to bequeathing the same sort of legacy to progress politics for which Ralph Nader and Jill Stein are both so fondly remembered today. Um, Kiara, first of all, how, how excited are we by the prospect of Howard Schultz, former Starbucks CEO, running for president? I think I speak for my fellow journalists at the table right now and saying that we're probably not that excited uh, because, as you rightly highlighted right there, there's a... I just don't really think this is the right moment for a billionaire without particular political experience to be running for presidency. However, I've got to say that in all of this, possibly because I come from a European, specifically Italian political background, I can see the appeal of breaking a bipartisan situation so staunchly ingrained as it is in America, whether this is the right person to be doing this right now, I don't know. Uh, ben, it's, it's, it's touching verging on quaint uh, that Mr Schultz seems actually surprised by the coast-to-coast clamour of oh dear God no that has attended uh, his announcement of his plans. It, it is. I didn't expect that to settle in in Mr Schultz's mind quite so quickly given <laughs> that he's travelled this far without sensing the wind at all. Uh, I was having a bit of a chat to Jonathan Chait at New York Magazine uh, yesterday and he wrote uh, a wonderful take down of, of Schultz's uh, self-delusion, let's call it that to be polite. Um, and uh, he, he was remarking on how he thinks that Schultz has made it this far simply because he surrounded himself with high-paid consultants who are willing to tell him exactly what he wants to hear. Because, of course, their entire existence, their employment existence, is resting upon Schultz continuing to believe that he has a shot at the presidency. And I think that explains a lot of the remarkably bizarre things that he's said all over his media appearances this week. One of my personal favourites was when he pointed out to the hosts of Morning Joe that that um, there are about 42% of American voters who identify themselves as independents, with, while at the same time seeming to fail to grasp that 
identifying yourself as an independent doesn't mean you are part of some sort of other party called the independent party which he's just parachuted himself into as the as the current leader they could be they could be on the far side of the left on the far side of the right they could be anywhere on the political spectrum they're not going to simply say oh look there's Schultz he's an independent that's me I'll vote for him in fairness too Howard Schultz if I could afford to surround myself with people who spent all day telling me I was absolutely bloody marvelous and should be the leader of the free world I totally would uh, instead I'm stuck with you people um, Georgina <laughs> I've never known quite what to think about this because obviously one of the great marvels of American democracy is that anybody can have a lash at running for president if they feel like it but if you are somebody who has serious money serious heft and serious chance of actually attracting a bit of attention and perhaps some votes do you have a responsibility to worry about splitting the vote because oh, absolutely because there is of course the argument that Ralph Nader effectively gave the 2000 election to George W Bush and that Jill Stein gave the 2016 one to Donald Trump but are they not entitled to run for the job. Well, I mean, nobody can stop them. At least nobody can stop them if they're running as an independent. And I think this is key here, is that Schultz has been a lifelong Democrat, but he's chosen not to run for the Democrats, I think knowing that he hasn't got a chance in hell of being selected f- at primary level. So, I mean, he's, he's going at it as an independent. And I think the thing is that the arrival of Donald Trump has created the space for him to do this. He's seen a millionaire businessman do this and go ahead and, and, and actually win it. But as everybody is pointing out... What he is going to do is split the vote. I think there's quite an interesting thing here, and it's something that Ben pointed out to me earlier in the week when we were talking about this, is is it possibly a completely mad idea? Uh, But is it that Trump... that he might be there to, in fact, keep Trump in power. Is is this a way to make sure that Trump actually does win? It's mm. It sounds bizarre. It could be possible. This, it, this sounds like a descendant of the theory that was briefly popular a few years ago that Donald Trump was actually running interference for the Clintons. <laughs> well, I, I believe this theory was first floated on, on Twitter by a journalist who works for Vox. I think his name is Matthew Iglesias. Uh, so it, it's not something that has gained a lot of credence, and I, I believe that even he doesn't necessarily believe it himself. Uh, but it does strike you as a possibility, only because you look at Howard Schultz and think you are clearly a very intelligent person who understands how politics works, to some extent, and how economics works. So why would he approach this with any degree of seriousness if he didn't want the inevitable to happen? Uh, Chiara, you were mentioning earlier the the happy example of Italy uh, and its experience with having billionaire businessmen uh, running the government. Uh, Is it automatically a bad idea? I mean, are there any constitutionally eligible Americans you can think of who have a profile outside politics who would be welcome entrants to the 2020 presidential election? I mean, I'm going to say Willie Nelson, obviously, but I I was expecting a, a, a few slightly more left field suggestions from the rest of you. No, I don't think that being a billionaire is necessary. Well, not that it's my favourite kind of candidate because I I personally have a tendency to back people who don't necessarily come from that route. But I don't think being a successful businessman is a hindrance to entering politics. I agree with what Georgina was saying, which is that basically this feels like Schultz cutting the queue and just trying to go at it from an independent point of view because he couldn't go with the Democrats or within the Democrats. I also like to point out that many have already started thinking about the effect that they will have that that this potential failed bid will have on the Starbucks as a business and whether it will be more detrimental for him to 
back out now or whether it would be more detrimental for him to keep running and for and for um for a boycott to be put into place I have a uh, I, I get very upset when I look at these uh, celebrity types of politicians and I'm I'm not just talking about Howard Schultz here because he's not really a celebrity anyway but he sort of has had he that now. well he, he's always had a bit of a, an odd culty following actually but um, I, I get really annoyed even with the Cynthia Nixons and although Cynthia Nixon came at her campaign to be New York governor with uh, uh, she she was quite credible in her her ambition to want to do it for the right reasons but I just don't know why they need to start with the top job first. If you're so dedicated to this public service idea, to the greater good, to all of these these wonderful ideals of how how great things could be, as Howard Shields has been talking about for a week now, why do you need to jump to the presidency or to the governor of, a, of one of the biggest states in the US? Why can't you be city councillor first? Or, you know, start somewhere small, work your way up. Even Hillary Clinton had to stand to be a senator before she could make it as secretary of state, despite the fact she'd already been in the White House as first lady. Just work for it. My colleague, my colleague has has a very, very sound idea there. But I think one of the problems in American politics is that name recognition is so important uh, and that celebrity actually is the key. And can the race actually be won by anybody who hasn't formally been in the public eye? And therefore, I would like to put forward my candidate... Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> well, <clears throat> we have that to look forward to. Uh, let's move on for the moment and look at Zimbabwe, a country which has been widely assumed to be getting better on the grounds that it was at one recent juncture, hard to imagine it getting much worse. But it is now more than a year since overstaying tyrant Robert Mugabe was forced from office and replaced by his longtime ally, ally rather, Emerson Mnangagwa. Recent events have caused weary Zimbabweans to suspect that there may be a hint of meet the new boss, same as the old boss, about the transition. Pro- Protests against hikes in fuel prices, among other privations, have been met with a brutal response from authorities. Several people have been killed, hundreds arrested, and there seems an amount of confusion as to who is actually in charge. Um, Georgina, you have what I hope is the advantage uh, of analysing this situation, uh, of being actually Zimbabwean. Uh, Briefly then, if you would, what is, as far as anybody can tell, actually going on? Well, firstly, can I just congratulate you on your pronunciation of Munangagwa? I can't tell you how many it, interviews I've been on recently where they just can't say I'm it. not going to lie, it took me a while. <laughs> well, But you know, the, the, the easy way I call him to, as Zimbabweans do, they call him E.D. because his first name is Emerson uh, Dumbledore Munangagwa, so they call him E.D. but now his followers have become known as idiots, <laughs> which I think is quite funny. Uh, so what's going on? So basically there was what everybody's very carefully calling not a coup, which deposed uh, Mugabe. Uh, the person behind that was Konstantin Chiwenga, who at the time was the head of the army, is now the vice president. Uh, And uh, effectively, the Zimbabwean military has been in charge for several years. When Mugabe lost an election in 2008, uh, the military told him he basically had to stay in power. And this is what this is. So you've got the same political machinery at its heart, uh, just the individual at the top has changed. Uh, The individual at the top, one E.D. Munangagwa, uh, was the head of the CIO, the Central Intelligence Organization, which organized and carried out massacres in the 1980s. This is a very cruel man, and we know that he's Mm. deeply, deeply corrupt. It's, Popularly it's, known as the crocodile. Yeah, uh, documented in UN reports and stuff. This is not just hearsay. We know he's desperately corrupt. Uh, and so he is now in charge, uh, although the, the election itself is disputed. He has as his deputy the man who put him there. And this is at the heart of the problem at the moment because there seems to be some kind of uneasiness in that relationship. Some people say that the two are squaring up, that Chiwenga actually wants the leadership, is trying to get ED out. And nobody's quite sure because what's happening is that... Um, 
um, uh, everything. So uh, Edie is is tweeting, for instance, this is terrible, this is appalling. We must we must make sure that we we everybody who's who's done these terrible things, i.e., using live ammunition on defenceless people who are using their constitutional right to protest, raping children. All of this, he's saying that this is absolutely outrageous. And then you have his spokesperson coming out saying, "Don't trust his Twitter account. This is not true." I have to say that I did actually write to Twitter and encourage my uh, um, uh, Zimbabwean friends to uh, query whether this was in fact a verified account. I did post uh, the link to report an account that uh, might be an impersonation. I believe a few hundred people have since done that. He's still got his blue tick, however. Just to follow that up, Georgina, the, the, the Zimbabwe that Manangagwa inherited was not something that anybody was going to be able to turn around in a year and a bit with with the best will in the world. Have there been any noticeable improvements on where Zimbabwe was during the the dwindling of Robert Mugabe? Uh, The one noticeable thing is that because of this split between the army and the police, the police were thought very much to support the old guard, i.e. Mugabe's lot. Uh, The police have now come off the streets and you've seen a reduction in crime uh, because many of the police were actually in, in Involved in that, so that has been one positive. Uh, as you're absolutely right, the economy cannot recover overnight. But this is absolutely no way to encourage uh, inward business or, or anything of the of the type. Uh, inflation currently at forty two point nine percent, I think, and, and rising. It's it's a hopeless situation. But until uh, you demilitarize the government, you can't even begin to start fixing the economy. It strikes me that there was a, an enormous amount of expectation once the uh, time of Mugabe came to an end. And that often happens when we have these very, very troubling reigns in politics happen for so, so long, so many decades. And then suddenly it seems as though there's a chance to have a clean slate, wipe everything that was there before away and start all over again. And of course, that's never actually how it is. And even if we're not talking about Mugabe specifically, you could translate this to, uh, you could compare this to other other uh, uh, political revolutions that have happened. Ukraine, for example, uh, once the Maidan revolution took place and uh, we, we saw the, the former president ousted, a new one put in, and everyone had this expectation that everything would be okay now, everything will be on its way to improving. That's not how it works because those people can't exist in power for so long without some sort of support network as well. And unfortunately, they're the people who end up sticking around, the ones who operate behind the scenes, they pull the strings behind the scenes, and that's why you have this lingering effect of darkness that continues on and on and on, and it's much harder to rip away those people. Uh, Kiara, is there a, a, a wider lesson here about the int- attention span of the media? Have they done that thing, or have we done that thing, I guess, as Ben suggested, of following the story up to a dramatic point at which uh, you know the bad guy gets overthrown, uh, replaced by somebody who might be less bad, and therefore everyone assumes, oh, well, I'm sure it, it'll be fine. Well, obviously, because that's how I think the media operates. What I'd like to understand from Georgina, perhaps, is whether she thinks that this is this has reached a crisis point where we will see another moment of media attention where we, there will be calls for another kind of regime overthrow and whether this will be another point in the media dynamic where then we'll see another silence for another year or so until something else like this happens. What's your point of view? Um, you know, I mean, I think overthrows a very dangerous look at Iraq. Um, and uh, when, 
you when you compare Zimbabwe perhaps to Venezuela, which is happening absolutely in parallel, and you see that there is really no appetite from the West to get involved in Zimbabwe, and really why should there? There's very little uh, to be gained for, for Western countries to be involved. In terms of media attention, I think because Venezuela's happening, because Brexit's happening, because you have that person in the White House, uh, attention is, is forced away from Zimbabwe. Nobody's that interested. Uh, sometimes it does hit the headlines, and unfortunately it's for terrible things. So most recently it was because there is now there are now credible reports of rapes of children, and this uh, luckily is now finally getting the attention it needs. It was discussed uh, uh, in, in the British House of Commons uh, the, the other day, and there has been a very, very strong statement from the British government. Also, uh, the UN has talked about it, and the US is talking about it too, but it's just not sexy enough for the British media right now, uh, and it's not really getting much traction in the rest of the world. And unfortunately, one hates to wish uh, anything terrible, anything even more terrible happening in Zimbabwe, but until it reaches the next crunch point, I fear it is going to drop out of the news. OK, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Miller, along with Chiara Ramella, Georgina Godwin and Ben Ryland. Coming up next, why the winner of Australia's richest literary prize did not turn up to collect the cheque. The rolling hills of Somerset might not be the most usual spot for a world-class art space, but it proved to be the perfect fit for Hauser & Worth, an international art gallery with its heart in the countryside. Monocle Films reviews a weird and wonderful show that looks at our relationship with the land. We used to base our knowledge, our experience of the world, on the land, on nature, on the other beings that shared the world. Now we don't. So I'm trying to, in a way, re-establish a relationship to a form of knowledge that could be useful for us. Somerset's Strange Fruit, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Ben Ryland, Chiara Ramella and Georgina Godwin. Now, the organisers of the Victorian Prize for Literature in Australia face a logistical issue with conveying the $100,000 purse to the 2019 winner, Behrouz Bouchani, an, Ira- an Iranian-Kurdish asylum seeker currently resident in a detention centre on Manus Island in Papua New Guinea. Bouchani also won the $25,000 prize for non-fiction at the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards for his book, No Friend but the mountains a a volume he composed by text messages in Persian sent to his translator. Buchani first entered Australia's asylum system in 2013. Um, ben, much as Georgina had the advantage in our previous item of being Zimbabwe, and you have the advantage here of being Victorian, um, is, a, is a statement being made here, and if so, to whom? <laughs> I believe a statement is being made here, a very clear one. Uh, this is perhaps not so surprising coming from this side of, of uh, the publishing spectrum anyway. So uh, Victoria obviously leans a little bit to the left. Uh, well, maybe a lot to the left. Um, As of the last state election, quite dramatically. <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed. So it's perhaps not surprising to see this sort of statement popping out of Victoria, but I do think it is a very healthy one. Uh, the the debate over asylum seekers and Australia's immigration policies, which are, of course, uh, quite shamefully seen across the world. In Australia, it is a very, very reluctant debate for anyone to have. And unfortunately, we do have this conflation of uh, the, the idea of what constitutes border protection 
protection with how we should uh, detain people who do come to Australia by boat. The argument is that if you sail to Australia by boat um, and you try to, to, to obtain asylum that way, then you will never, ever be eligible to be resettled in Australia. The reasoning being that that then destroys the, the allure of Australia from the perspective of people smugglers. And travelling to Australia by boat is a very, very dangerous thing to do. So there is an argument to be made about wanting to destroy the people smuggling market. The big question then comes to comes up when we ask what happens to those people that we do detain. We can't just lock them up forever. That's what's happening now. You've got indefinite detention, and that's that's what's happened to uh, Beruz Buchani. Uh, there's there's no light at the end of the tunnel for a lot of these people, and you've got you've got children locked up in these centres as well. It is an absolutely hopeless, horrific set of circumstances. Most of, most Australians don't want to have this debate, and if it ends if it ever gets brought up politically, it's usually in the, in the context of well, if we change anything at all, you're going to have the floods of people coming back to Australia, which is what happened when Kevin Rudd tried to change it as Prime Minister for, for a while. And that has simply brought both sides of politics to the exact same position on this. And, and until we can separate these two things, until we can say, yes, it's true, we, we need to make sure that we destroy the business model for people smugglers. But at the same time, we can't do that at the expense of people's human rights. Until we are at a place where politically that sort of argument can be put to the Australian people, None of this is going to change. I hope that the awarding of this uh, of this literary prize to Beirut's Buchani is going to put that debate back in the public spectrum. But unfortunately, we've got an election coming up in probably around May, and that's not going to be one of the issues that's going to be voted upon. Uh, almost certainly not, sadly. Uh, Kiara, does a, a gesture like this, and that's, this is not to detract at all from whatever literary merits uh, Beris Bichani's book may possess, I, I have not as yet read it, uh, but does something like this actually advance a discussion about this or any other issue, or does it just become yet another flashpoint around, people, around which people will just loudly yell at each other what they already thought anyway. I'd like to believe that culture can have some degree of influence over people's perception of things. Um, and again, apologies if I keep comparing the, these kind of situations <laughs> with my own home country, but I, a very recent um, con- contradiction in terms is going on in, in the um, Italian media as well. A very popular crime series called Montalbano is soon to uh, air with an episode dedicated to migrant boats. And this is a huge political topic right now in Italy. And the, the, the very fact that we don't even know what the narrative of the episode is going to be, but the very fact that this um, this very popular TV show, it's, it's a TV show that's popular across the kind of political spectrum, will even tackle this issue, has created enormous um, debate in, in the media. So I like to think that cultural artefacts that can be approached and, and feel parallel to the normal political debate can touch people in different ways. So I don't know if they will shift policy, but I like to believe that they can have 
effect on people who wouldn't normally be receptive to certain degrees and certain themes. Uh, Georgina, from the point of view of a non-Australian such as yourself, does it strike you that whatever you may or may not think of Australia's asylum policies in this respect, it's, it's handled the messaging badly? Because this is the thing that occurs to me, at least, in that it, what doesn't get covered, certainly in, in the international media, is that Australia actually does okay in taking asylum seekers and refugees in. Um, 2015 16 it was 13,750 and an additional 12,000 from Syria and Iraq whereas the the view of Australia that tends to get projected is is of this absolutely rigidly inhospitable place and I think you're absolutely right I wasn't aware of those figures and indeed I'm surprised I just do hear that the the general media view that Australia has this blanket policy that nobody gets in and I think awarding a prize like this is useful because it highlights that message it gets the discussion going it makes facts like that come out more but I also think that were I an Australian writer, I might be slightly dismayed by this, that in fact somebody who was not eligible in any way for this prize uh, won it. Uh, I haven't read the book. It might be a fantastic piece of literature. I've no doubt that it is. It wouldn't uh, obviously have won. But of course, there's got to be a little bit of, of politicking behind it. If you look at, um, so on the shortlist was Gail Jones, who, quick plug for the programme, Meet the Writers, who was <laughs> one of our previous guests. Uh, also Kim Scott, who's also been on the programme. Now he's an Indigenous Australian writer uh, and uh, is very vocal for for Indigenous people in Australia. And I think that there is a lot of work to be done uh, in highlighting that section of literature, perhaps before going on to to other things that, that really can't be changed. Okay, well, finally tonight, it has been a week which has reminded brutally of the blood sport aspects of attempting to run a digital media enterprise, widespread job losses at BuzzFeed and the Huffington Post, and the apparent demise of the pool. It seems, therefore, an especially unpropitious moment for a soap manufacturer to take a crack at content provision, but this is apparently not going to stop Lush, attempting to branch out from shops which you can smell six blocks away to film, TV, podcasts, and so forth. Talent already aboard includes the filmmaker Julian Temple and the comedian agitator Mark Thomas. Um, Chiara, you you were saying before we came on air that you you have views on Lush's already established product range. Well, as a, am I allowed to say, as, a, as an actual consumer of Lush products... I can't see any reason why you can't. <laughs> I have found myself very often reading, for example, the copy on Lush products and and reading the title, the, the names that the products are being given. And I do think there is an element of creativity in there. that uh, I wouldn't have thought that Lush could branch out into storytelling, but I can see why somebody who has a relatively right approach to copywriting might get tempted to kind of branch it out a little a bit more. Now, whether that translates into the output that I've so far seen uh, Lush will actually branch out into, um, I've, I've read something about a documentary on an Israeli settlement in the West Bank and, and, and so forth. So I don't know what the direct relation between Lush brand and Lush output will be. Should, should we just get the, 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 the obvious soap opera's joke dealt with <laughs> right, 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 right now? I, I just feel like it's, 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 hanging, it's, it's the veritable sword of Damocles hanging over this table right now. Uh, we've got it out of the way. Ben, is there any real prima facie reason why this wouldn't work? I mean, Lush, you know, they clearly they have a digital presence. They can doubtless hire people who can operate microphones and cameras. Is there any reason why this won't work? Yeah, it might be terrible. Um <laughs> 
no, I'm I'm not entirely surprised that a brand would want to take this step. I, I am surprised that Lush is one of the first brands to be uh, venturing out into it. But the idea of the the internet uh, world of 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 online content of their as they're calling it now being sliced up in this sort of way is not surprising at all. And I think you only need to look at the way that streaming platforms are evolving to really get a hint of that. For a long time, what we've seen is a lot of these film studios and 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 content makers starting to replicate what was happening in the old days when film studios owned their own theatres. What they really want is to own the distribution method from start to finish. They make it and they deliver it right into your lounge room, just like uh, uh, Netflix and, and Amazon do. So back in the old days of television, of course, you had something like, you know, the, the Colgate Comedy Hour, where you had one, one product, one brand sponsor an entire te- television program. Now, uh, of course, back then, they would, Colgate would go to CBS and they would say, please, we're going to pay you this money. Go and make me a comedy hour. And that's what CBS would do. Now we've got to the point where technology has allowed Colgate, or in this case Lush, to think, well, we don't need the broadcaster. Let's just create it ourselves. We'll pay someone to make us a fancy website. We'll call it a streaming platform. You can watch it via an app on your phone. And all of a sudden, look, we're just like Vice News, but with soap. So you can visit us on the street and then you can watch us at home. We're not just a soap brand anymore. We're now a lifestyle company. That's See, what we're seeing. That That's a glimpse into the frightening future. I, I, I'm surprised this hasn't happened more often. This idea, Georgina, of, of, of companies wanting to project their values as well as the thing they actually make. And I, I guess this seems a logical extension of the fuss that was created the other week by that Gillette commercial, uh, that the idea that instead of making commercials that project what you think of as your, your brand's values, you make actual news and documentaries and films. Absolutely. And I foresee this happening more and more. I mean, just just on the subject of Lush, though, this isn't their fir- the first time they've branched out. They have a book club, too. Uh, and in fact, uh, I think that the inaugural book in this was a book about the life story of the co-founder, Mark Constantine, called The Road to Pelandaba. And it was written by his best friend about this kind of long story trying to find his father and things. So they, they have definitely tried to, to kind of jump on this this whole media thing, to do it with books, now to do it with, with, with streaming and so on. And, and obviously, I think people are going to try and own the message as much as they possibly can. I think that's probably the way forward. But but like uh, Instagrammers or influencers uh, who have hashtag ad, I think it's really <laughs> important that we need that we know this, that we're not watching a piece of entertainment and thinking that that's all it is, that we realise that this is absolutely associated to a brand. And incidentally, uh, Chiara has very, very nice hair and she says that's absolutely down to lush. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Georgina Godwin, Chiara Ramella and Ben Ryland, thank you all for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Augustin Machalari, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Maylin Evans. Our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. Music next at 1900. It's The Menu with Marcus Hippie. There's more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. I'll be your host for that as well. Midori House returns on Monday at 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks very much for listening. 